Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside our two-bedroom apartment in downtown Baltimore, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you. As always, live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You p- perhaps could be listening to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast. Uh, if you are, give us a like, give us a review, give us a subscribe. All that good stuff. Five-star review. Brendan, how was your Christmas? It was wonderful. Good. Um, an intro so nice. We're doing it twice. It was nice to... Uh, yeah, we tried this yeah. going live. This, These are the difficulties of running a show out of your kitchen. Yeah. That's literally what we're doing. <laughs> but uh, it was lovely. It was nice to go home and see some family. Uh, like I said before, nothing too crazy. <laughs> <laughs> nothing said five times. Deja vu. Five minutes ago. All over again. Yeah. Um, you know, nothing crazy, small family gatherings. This is only for the people that watched the first time five minutes ago when yes. we got five minutes into the show, two minutes into the show. Yeah, five minutes is generous. Yeah, and uh, let's hope it doesn't happen again <laughs> because then you'll be hearing Brendan's Christmas story a third time. It's not very thrilling. It, I, I went home and, and saw some family and it was nice. Yeah, good. That was, that was it. That was the Christmas story. Well, my question for you, Brendan. Yes. What are the 12 days of Christmas? When are they? I would think, to be honest with you, this isn't a question that I have contemplated. You haven't? No. I, when I, do you think that the 12 I days I have of not Christmas been are? up at night racking my brain about when the 12 days no, of Christmas are. No, but were you are. taught at some point when the 12 days of Christmas are? I don't occur? think I was. Okay, because I had a debate on Christmas Day with a very small gathering. We only had my uncle over, so it was a very five people at most. And uh, he was under the impression that the 12 days of Christmas began on December 13th. And ran the, the, through the twelve days leading up to Christmas. Yes. Is that what you believe? I, I don't quite know if I believe anything. Okay, but because yeah, I, I'm not. Your I'm world not is sure. about to be shattered if this is. I, I that would have been my guess because my sister and I jumped in and said, "No, no, 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 no." We went to Catholic school for far too long. Uh, we know that the twelve days of Christmas are from December 25th until January 6th, which is the feast of the Epiphany. Which well, okay, means the then. first day of Christmas is on Christmas Day. It makes no sense for the first day of Christmas to be December 13th. That's just a random day. So the right. feast of Christmas but then, is from well, I suppose, I suppose if you That's didn't still know, Advent. If you didn't know the significance of January 6th, I suppose you would say that January 6th is exactly. just a random day. But again, Catholic school for far too long, it was you learned drilled into my brain. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't go. know. I, I we are still in. So that we're, this is what? The 25th, 26th, 27th. Today's 29th. 28th, so we're still in the 29th. days of Christmas. Today's the fifth day of Christmas, which means today is five golden rings. Wow. Where are my five golden rings, Brendan? I didn't get you any. Something to learn for next year. I guess so. All right. Well, we're going to talk uh, baseball at some point on this podcast. We are going to give our New Year's resolutions, and then we're going to preview... Uh, Something that we call the All Camden Yards Draft. We'll explain what that is and what we're going to be doing for the All Camden Yards Draft in a week later on in this podcast. But first, Brendan, we want to talk about 
what got us thinking along this topic, I don't know if you've seen, but the San Diego Padres appear to be Whew. making some moves. Yeah. It's good because they have made more moves than the rest of baseball combined this yep. offseason, it appears, and all within the past 48 to 72 hours. They are single-handedly making the offseason exciting. No other team is doing anything, I think. is The the only other team that's really made any significant moves are the, the Royals? The, the Royals signed Carlos Santana. The Nationals yeah. traded for Josh Bell. Mm-hmm. I would say the Mets signed James McCann. Those are probably, think, unless I'm forgetting something, I think those are probably the most significant moves that have been made. And then, of course, you have the Padres that said, hey, if you are a good starting pitcher, welcome. It, the James McCann deal might be the most lucrative deal signed this offseason, right? Yeah. Well, to be fair, McCann was probably the second best catcher on the market yeah, at a valuable position. There was JT Real Muto and then 50 feet of crap, as they say, and Moneyball, and right. then the rest of yes. the field. So, like, he was the second best because yeah. there was not a deep field. Real Muto is by far the best. Yeah. So, I don't think I don't think they should have, the Mets should have paid him $40 million, Right. But that's the most lucrative deal. I mean, he's the most high-profile free agent to have signed, right? Yeah. Other than the guys who picked up their team options or their right. took their qualifying offer and Marcus Stroman and... Kevin Gosman, <laughs> right? That's pretty much it. So the yeah. Padres making these moves, of course, trading for for Blake Snell, trading for you Darvish. So they are making moves. Yes. So that got us thinking. Essentially, if we are GMs or president of baseball operations, how would we run a team? What kind of philosophies would we instill in order to make sure that we're contending at the right time? So we're going to play the role of GM or president of baseball operations and give our rules for building a contender. And the Orioles have followed a lot of these rules so far, but there are other things that we think might help a team and could possibly help some front offices. We think we're smarter than a lot of the GMs in baseball, if you don't know. I'm definitely not. But, but my <laughs> first rule sticks with the Padres, okay. and that is no one to buy and no one to sell and don't sit somewhere in the middle yeah. of being a team that is close to being in contention and being a team that is has a good farm system. The Padres were in a great position coming into this offseason. They had a team at the major league level that was probably overperforming. You had some prospects that have been called up over the last few years that are playing fantastic baseball. Obviously, guys like Fernando Tatis Jr., Denilson Lamette are the two that come to mind. They are overperforming to what people thought they would be. People thought they would be great, but probably not this good right away. You combine that with the signing of Manny Machado and the fact that they already have a deep farm system. Now was the time to deal those farm system guys for players that can help you be contenders. They weren't settling with having an overperforming major league team and waiting for some more guys to come up through the system to help them out. They said, okay, we have these guys in the system. Are they more valuable to us a few years down the road? Or do we see a window of opportunity to win right now? And can we deal those guys to try to get players to win right now? And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, It's a, it's a really good combination of guys over, overperforming at the major league level to the point where they said, okay, I think this is a window of opportunity. And then you deal those farm system guys and hope that you're winning over the next few years. And how that relates to the Orioles, I think this team is still in the first phase of that, which is no one to sell. Right. And this is, they clearly 
are not going in. They're not buying on this current core. They're not buying yet. They're not at that point in their rebuilding plan. The Padres were at the Orioles point a few years ago. Yes. And they were in that spot for probably a little bit longer than Michael Elias would like to be in that spot because it took them a while to rebuild properly and to make sure that they had the core. But when they did go all in, they clearly did it uh, at the right time. And they are clearly now in buy mode. And that also shows the fact that this Padres system has been probably one of the best, if not baseball's best, over the past few years. Your, your system can never be too good because you're not just looking for guys to come up and make their debuts and be good for you. When you are good, you're looking to also still have a deep enough system to the point where you can trade guys out of that system and get even better current major league players, veterans. Right, and that's the thing. You can't just sit on the good farm system. Yeah. If you're the Padres and you had some great prospects that are just sitting there and might not get time at the major league level because you already have a good amount of good players there they're not they're not any use to you yeah so if you can get great starting pitching like they have right now they probably not probably when all of these guys are healthy they have probably far and away the best rotation in major league baseball yeah with Blake Snell you Darvish Dinelson Lament Chris Paddock and hopefully soon a healthy Mike Clevenger. right nobody touches that if your number five pitcher there is probably Chris Paddock are you kidding that is an insane rotation. And pair that with the fact that they have Manny Machado, Fernando Tatis Jr. They have good hitters in that lineup. I think the Padres, with kind of selling their farm system a little bit, will it blow up in their faces in four or five years if they didn't win anything over this period of time? Maybe. But now is the time to take the gamble. You can't just sit on the wealth of prospects that you have and not do anything with it if you have a window of opportunity to win. My rule for building a contender goes along with that in a lot of ways. And it is either you are rebuilding or contending or trying to contend. So basically, you can't be stuck in the middle ground. You don't want to be stuck in the middle ground. That is the worst place to be as a sports franchise, I think, in general. It goes across football. You don't want to be stuck with a mediocre quarterback in the middle on a, with an expensive roster. In baseball, it's the same thing. You don't want to be stuck with one of the most expensive rosters in baseball on a team that is not winning. So teams that come to mind of teams that have not done this well, uh, the Phillies definitely have not done that well. Um, Teams that have done that well, the Orioles, the Braves, the Padres. Because they know what they are. They know that for example, the Orioles, they know what they are. They know that they don't have the core to contend at this point. They know that they are still several years away, so they are rebuilding in full, and they're not trying to fool themselves and tell themselves, we, if we get a piece here and this guy debuts, maybe we can make a push for a wild card spot. They say, no, we know that we're not good enough to compete, and it doesn't matter that we had, we're 10 games below 500 last year. We're not close enough, and we know that. Uh, you have to know what you are at, at some point. And the worst place to be is a team that thinks, okay, well, I know we were 10 games below 500 last year, but this guy was injured and, you know, we got had some bad luck, tough strength of schedule. Uh, we, if these guys, three guys take a leap and we sign two more guys, maybe we can make it. Because that you're not going to be good enough. Um, you have to either be rebuilding which means you are tearing this thing down and you are trying to get a high draft pick and you're trying to save money in order to contend in the future, 
or you are contending. And if you are contending, go all the way in, like the Padres have done. Don't say, all right, well, we still have a good farm system, so if this doesn't really work out, maybe we can get better in a couple years. Get good now, because you have to capitalize on when your guys are the best. When you have a core group of players that are really good and you think you can win with, you have to surround them with enough talent to get them over the hump. The other spot that you're okay with being, and this will be the Orioles in probably two years, is not quite yet a good team, but still young and still cheap and exciting. Yes, I, I think the worst place you could possibly be is a mediocre team with aging veterans. Yeah, a- a- another that's, example. That's the worst place you can be. Another example, the Diamondbacks. It seems like every year, you know, they, they signed Zach Renke. Great, well, the team that signed Zach Renke was not a very good team. And Zach Renke was not going to get them over the hump. Um, they did it last year with uh, Madison Bumgarner. That Ma- Diamondbacks team wasn't good enough. And Madison Bumgarner was not going to be the difference between a bad team and a good team. It was going to be the difference between a bad team and a slightly better team. And he ended up not being that good. So they wasted money on that deal. Because they thought, okay, we are contending, but we're not going to go all the way in on this. So you, you, either you're rebuilding contending or you're young exciting and you're on your way to contention yeah and and, okay so the next one isn't one of my rules but it's a a comment on youtube from uh matt richmond that i want want to address it says contenders need money first of all i raise you the 2014 uh, around that era kansas city royals also first of all yeah well the 2020 tampa bay rays that as well (laughs) the 2020 tampa bay rays who were 29th in payroll i believe yes I think the large market fallacy is overblown a little bit. Is it easier to sign big name free agents if you are a big market team? Yes. However, all that really does is give you a little bit more flexibility. A big market team can still sign a player to a really bad contract and have that hamper their team down the line. Look at the Mets with a Robinson Cano contract. Look at the Tigers, who were contending for a little while, signed Miguel Cabrera to a big contract. They're now hampered by that contract. If you are a bigger market team, it just gives you more flexibility with those contracts. You can miss on one. Larger room for error. Larger room for error. But that doesn't mean that you can't be a small market team and still contend. The Padres aren't the biggest market in the world. They're spending their money. They signed Manny Machado to a big deal, but they're not the Yankees. They don't have tons and tons of unlimited funds. The Tampa Bay Rays are certainly not a large market team. The Royals, like I talked about from you know the mid-2010s, they are not a large market team. What the Royals did was build a really good farm system and work up from there yeah. so that they don't have to go out and sign huge free agents. And by the same token... We do see a lot of large market teams succeed because they have larger room for error, like we talked about. The Dodgers, they're in L.A. They're, they're going to make money hand over fist, and they are going to use that to get seven straight division titles. But they also have to be good at building their team. Exactly. The New York Mets, huge market, biggest market in America. They haven't made the playoffs since, the what, 2014 when they made the World Series? Yeah. When they lost to the Kansas City Royals, a small market team. So you can still have a big market team fail miserably, and you can have a small market team succeed. It just is a matter of room for error. So Matt, may I say to you, I would modify that sentence from contenders need money 
to money helps contenders. I will also say, though, Matt is uh, clearly a fan because he's calling our content great. So thanks, Matt. Let's, uh, let's yeah. give him a shout out. What's your next rule, Brendan? My next rule is don't ignore holes on your team, which seems really obvious. However, there is one glaring example in Major League Baseball of a team that has every single year seemingly avoided the same hole on their team that is the Los Angeles Angels. I, it's kind of a joke among, you know, like baseball Twitter that every Los Angeles Angels fan says, man, if we just get that one pitcher, this is going to be our year. But that's almost kind of the case. Almost kind of. Their lineup is fantastic. They've got Mike Trout. They've got Anthony Rendon. They've got Shohei Otani. They've got Joe Adele coming up. They have a lot of good hitters. However, I can't remember the last time that the Angels had a really good starting pitcher. The last one that comes to mind is like prime Jared Weaver. Yeah. Probably. I mean, Shohei Otani has shown flashes. CJ Wilson. CJ Wilson. Yeah, but the, the Angels continue to ignore the fact that they need starting pitching. They really lucked into a resurgent season from Dylan Bundy. They have Otani, and then they have Griffin Canning, who is a prospect that they hope pans out, who is again, shown some pretty good flashes at the major league level, but I don't think is going to be anything particularly special. Angels, stop signing hitter after hitter after hitter because you aren't going to make the playoffs and you aren't going to make any noise if you continue to just not address the glaring hole on the team, which is starting pitching. It sounds obvious, and yet here we are. Well, one side, one aspect of your team being elite does not make up for another aspect of your team being below average. Exactly. Sometimes it does, but it is very rare. Very difficult to do. And because you're pitching, it does not matter how good that Angels offense and lineup is going to be. Pitching lost them so many games this year. I wasn't watching all their games because the Orioles never played them. They were on the West Coast. But you look at their stats and you look at their box scores every night and you say pitching lost them this game. It does not matter if Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon uh, and even Albert Pujols are mashing in the middle and Shohei Otani are mashing in the middle of your lineup. If your pitching is giving up six runs a game, you're not going to win. So I wholeheartedly agree with that. You, you cannot go all in on one aspect of your team and just say, we're going to win with this way and this way only. Their ERA, you have to have a balanced team. Their team ERA was a 5.09, which was good for fifth worst in baseball. Yikes. And that's, and that's not to say don't sign good players. Anthony Rendon is a great player, but they would have been better off the, the idea, they went into last offseason, I remember, and they were just saying, we want somebody. And if it's not Garrett Cole and Santhony Rendon, well, no. That's, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. It's, yeah. If it's not Garrett Cole, then it's the second best pitcher. It's the second best starting pitcher. You don't just switch over to a position player and say, well, if it's not Garrett Cole, then it's the best hitter on the market. Well, you don't need hitting. And they didn't. And, it, you know, is their team better with Anthony Rendon than without Anthony Rendon? Rendon? Absolutely. But he doesn't help their team as much as a great or better than average starting pitcher would have. And it's not like contenders don't have holes on their team. Yeah. But I would argue that most contenders, if not all contenders, if they do have an elite part of their team, the, the rest of their team is at least above average yeah. in those other facets. I mean, you look at the Tampa Bay Rays. They didn't have a ton of amazing hitters last year. Their starting rotation was very, very good, and that was obviously the strength of the team. 
but they still were an above-average lineup. They had guys like Randy Orozarena, like Brandon Lau, like guys that were actually able to hit. Yeah. Well, and, and don't go into, this is, again, not one of my rules, but I think of it, don't go into a season with those glaring holes. See, those glaring holes are going to pop up at some point. You, you, you know, so many teams before the season, we look at them and we say, well, you know, they're, they've got great pitching, but uh, they didn't really address the lineup and they need to address that, and they didn't, and it's going to come up. Because you, over the course of a season, you will have issues pop up that you didn't expect. I think of the Dodgers when, in 2018, when the Orioles traded them Manny Machado. They were a near-perfect team going into the season, and they had a huge hole by midseason because Corey Seager went down. So issues will pop up, so then they needed Manny Machado. So, But they were fine in the bullpen, they were fine in the rotation, and the lineup, outside, the, the lineup going into the season was elite. So they went, made the World Series because... They had they didn't have to address all these issues midseason. They weren't like, oh, we'll just address the bullpen in the middle of the year. We'll just you know trade for somebody at the trade deadline. Issues are going to happen to your team that you don't expect. So when you have an issue that is obvious to everybody from the outside, you can predict what's going to happen to your team. Don't assume that you can fix it at the deadline, especially because teams are going to look at your team as an opportunity to get above average value for somebody because you are in desperate need of a position. They're going to look at you with a vulturish expression and say, we are going to absolutely swindle this team because we know they are in desperate need of X. And with the Orioles specifically with this rule, I think they're doing a pretty good job of it. They're on the other side. They're in the vulturish position where they can give a team Tommy Malone and expect a bigger than deserved return and not only that but there are certainly holes on this major league roster right now but it seems like everything has a plan yeah like there's a hole at shortstop right now but in a few years guys like Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westberg are going to be at the major league level there seems to be a plan for everything yeah teams like the Angels I don't think they have a plan for their starting pitching no no and they're trying to contend that's the biggest difference the Orioles are not right Um, all right my next one is don't buy on a crappy core and uh, this is kind of it goes along with the first one as well, the team philosophy there. But again, a team that falls into that example, the Angels, the Phillies. I think of the Diamondbacks, maybe even the Reds at some point, although the Reds did make the postseason last year, but we'll see if that it, it sticks, if they're a perpetual postseason uh, contender or if they were just kind of a one-year wonder. Basically, you don't buy in free agency to make a bad team mediocre. You don't buy in free agency to make a mediocre team good. You buy in free agency to make a good team great. You can't build a team in free agency. And again, this goes across sports. You can get a great player that can put you over the top in free agency. You can get a Mookie Betts in a trade that puts you over the top in free in the offseason. But what you can't do is be a non-contending team a below average team, a below 500 team, and think we can spend our way out of this. Because if you're a below 500 team, odds are you have a bad core. Your core is not good enough to win. So what does that say? You probably need to either tear it down or boost your farm system or wait another year and see if that team gets better. Because you cannot spend in free agency to try to make a mediocre team good or a bad team mediocre now the only other example that I can think of in terms of an approach in free agency 
that is kind of not new, but it, I, I think it's a little bit of a newer age idea, and that is buying in free agency with the intent to sell those guys that you have just bought. I, right. I, I think that's an interesting strategy that we're seeing the Royals implement it, I would think, because I can't imagine the Royals have plans of holding on to somebody like a Carlos Santana. We've seen the Orioles do it. I mean, they just did it with Tommy Malone and Jose Iglesias. So I think that's another potential outcome and an outlook into free agency is if you are buying with the intent to then turn around and trade those guys. But you're right. If you don't have a good core established already, there is very little sense in going out and trying to sign these big-name free agents. The Padres, I think, fooled a lot of people when they signed Manny Machado because I think a lot of people were looking at that team and saying, this team's not ready yet. Why yeah. are they signing Manny Machado? They were just a year or two ahead of us. Right. I think this was pretty much always the plan. Maybe they didn't know for sure that these prospects would pan out as well as they did, but you can also sign somebody in anticipation of being a contender in a year or two, but you have to be pretty, pretty sure that the prospects in the core that you have are going to pan out in a year or two when you're actually making those signings. Brendan, what's your final rule for building a contender? My final rule, Paul, is don't be afraid to call up prospects. Obviously, with the Orioles, there are a lot of prospects on this team and a lot that are going to be a lot that have a lot of promise. You want to be patient with them, but not to the extent that they aren't helping you, right? You you want to be patient. You want to make sure that they have time to develop. But I look at the Nationals and Juan Soto. Juan Soto spent an unprecedented amount of time in the minor leagues. Unprecedented, unprecedented in that he barely spent any nothing. time yeah. in the minor leagues. That basically had not happened before Juan Soto was called up to the major league level with the Nationals. But clearly... He did not need the time in the minor leagues. So if you're somebody like the Orioles, yes, you want those prospects to develop. But take Adley Rutschman, for example. If he got a ton of work in the alternate site, don't say, well, he hasn't played many games at the AA, AAA level. If you think Adley Rutschman is ready to go, call him up. Yeah. There is no point in saying, well, we have to follow the precedent of keeping these guys at the minor league level for a few years before they get called up to the major leagues because look at Juan Soto. Not not every prospect is going to be Juan Soto, but if they're ready, they're ready. They could be Ryan Mountcastle. <laughs> right. Uh, the biggest impediment to that in implementing that rule, Brendan, is obviously service time. Right. And that is by far the biggest obstacle because you have teams that – Maybe they want to bring up somebody. Maybe they think a team, they think a prospect is ready to contribute at the major league level, but they don't want to start that clock too early. And Juan Soto, for example, absolutely worth it. And 100% agree you had to call him up. It was great that they did. Won a World Series for them. He also is now a Super 2 player, meaning he hit arbitration after his second or third year. Um, he hit arbitration a year early. I'll say that. Because he got... Um, enough at-bats, and he was productive enough to hit arbitration a year early, which means they may lose him a year bef prior than expected. That being said, it was worth it. It was worth it. So, it, I mean, that just, that just you know, is more evidence to your point, which is even if you do lose a guy a year early, 
They still won a World Series with the guy because he was ready to contribute. He did contribute. They won. Well, let me specify in saying that if you are not a team that is in a position to win, don't call up the prospect earlier rather than later because you want the service time. Right. However, if a few years down the line, the Orioles are ahead of schedule and they have a prospect that they haven't called up yet and they're waiting on a little bit, if you are in a position to win and there is a prospect that you think can help you win, call up the prospect. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about the service time at that point. If you are still in the rebuilding phase, sure, give those guys a little bit more time. But if you're ready to win, call up those guys. My final rule for building a contender, Brendan? Let's hear it. Don't waste years. And by that, I mean don't trade for wasted years. We see teams do this a fair amount. We saw the Mets trade for a wasted half season of Marcus Stroman. We saw even the Reds trade for a wasted half season of Trevor Bauer. So often we see these teams with a guy who's got a, a year and a half, two and a half years, two years left on his deal, and they say, well, we think we're going to compete next year, so let, we know he's available now. Let's go and get him because we know he's a good player, and while we may not be good enough right now, we think he's going to be better in a year. The problem with that is you end up having to overpay. Because you're paying, whether you like it or not, you're paying for that half year. Like the Mets did with Marcus Stroman in a year they didn't make the playoffs. Like the Mets did with Miguel Castro this year in a year where they clearly were not good enough to be a competitor and contend. Miguel Castro is another year closer to free agency, is another year closer to leaving the team. And they were not good this year. And he was not the difference in them making a playoff spot, you know, making the playoffs or not. So don't waste years from guys. Either you, it's, it goes again with you're either, compend, you're either competing and contending or you are not. You're either rebuilding or you're winning. And don't trade for years on contracts where you think that it's going to work out in the long run because the, the Reds got a year and a half of Trevor Bauer if he walks in free agency. And really, the only time they could use him was that one year. They wasted the half year when they didn't make the playoffs on him. So was that worth all the guys that they gave up for one year, essentially, of Trevor Bauer? We'll see. Probably not. Probably not. And with that wasted years, we, again, have been talking about the Padres a lot, but with good reason. We have a question on YouTube from Brooks that says, should the Orioles do something similar to the Padres when they signed Machado early if the Orioles feel that they're close? I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts, but I, I will say yes. Yeah, I would say yes as well. And to your wasted years point, having Manny Machado, how many years did he sign for? Ten years with an opt-out after five. Ten years with an opt-out after five. Three hundred million. Now, maybe the first two years of that Manny Machado contract, the Padres don't think that they are going to compete. But they have a lot of prospects coming up, and within the next few years, they think they're going to be able to compete. Well, they, they did compete in his second year. Right, in, in yeah. his second year. So, But that doesn't mean that that first year of the Manny Machado deal is a wasted year. Yes, you're not a great team when you have Manny Machado under contract for that time, but you're getting Machado in anticipation. So yes. say if the Orioles in a few years have prospects that are really coming together, say Adley Rutschman's been at the bigs for a year or two, say Heston Kerstad is close to the big league level, say the pitchers are panning out. If they think they're going to contend in a year or two, I would absolutely sign a free agent and see if he can help your team 
for the initial year that he's there, which isn't a wasted year, even if you're not contending, and then a year or two down the line when you are, getting him is going to be a big benefit because you didn't yeah. want to miss out on him before. And Eric Hosmer falls into that category as well. Yes. Because they signed him even earlier, a year or two before they signed Manny Machado, and he was contributing for them when they did make the playoffs in 2020. However, there are instances where that goes wrong. It's bring a, up, it's a dangerous game. For another time. It but is a dangerous game. They signed Jake Arrieta before they're good. They signed Carlos Santana before, he's, before they're good. Neither of those guys ended up working out for them because of injuries, because of production, and they just did not last on the team. So it can, you have to pick the right guy, as with anything, as with free agency in general. You can't just sign X veteran to $40 million and say, well, when we're good, um, you know, he'll be a contributor. You have to do it at a position of need. I'll say that. With Manny Machado, you know, you didn't need him at shortstop, so they moved him over the thir- to third base, but he's going to lock down third base for eight more years potentially. Um, and they did it at first base with Eric Hosmer. Position of need. It's not like they were they were putting him in a spot where he was going to be impeding the progress of a youngster coming through. That's like the Orioles when that when they get to that point, they obviously shouldn't be signing a catcher, you know, right. to a longer term deal. Right. Um, they should find a spot and say, all right, it's not likely that we're going to have somebody come up through shortstop for a few years or somebody come up through, I can't think of a position, maybe starting pitcher. Third base, be, if one of those shortstop prospects doesn't pump over. Yeah. Second, second base. base. Second base would probably be one. Yeah. Um, and say, we're not going to be impeding anybody's progress. We're not going to be, this guy is not going to be taking a spot away from a prospect. So let's let him man the position. Let's let him teach the younger guys how to be a professional, how to act, how to, you know, work hard behind the scenes, how to talk to the media, that kind of leadership matters and is important. So it's fine if one of those years is wasted. If the first year of that deal, they end up being, you know, five, 10 games below 500, not a competitor. But they, if they do get better and if that player stays productive throughout the final years of that contract, then it's not a wasted deal. And it's a gamble because you have to be very confident that those prospects that are coming up within the next few years are going to be good. I think Mike Elias and company are pretty confident in the prospects that they have. And over the next few years, they will continue to build that farm system. So in a few years, to answer your question in a very long way, Brooks, I would say yes. I think in a few years, if the Orioles are very confident in their farm system and there is somebody available at a position that won't impede the progress of a prospect coming up, Paul and I would agree, yes, sign that guy if you can. Trevor Story. Trevor Story. Maybe Glaber Torres. Glaber Torres. That'd be interesting. Put him in Camden Yards. Juan Soto. Juan, Juan Soto. Give him literally a billion dollars. Blank check. That is the yeah. blank check. All right. Let's talk about our New Year's resolution. Let's do it. First for you, Brendan, these are resolutions for the Orioles to carry out, carry out in 2021. Changes that they might need to make. Things to keep in mind as they go into the 2021 season. What's your first New Year's resolution? My first one is, my goodness, please lock down a position. The Orioles had two players that started at least, uh, two position players, I should clarify, that started at least 50 games at their respective position last year. Those two players being Hans Alberto, who will not be back with the Orioles next year, probably. Most likely. Most likely. And Rio Ruiz at third base, who we don't know if he is going to continue 
to be the everyday third baseman for the Orioles because, quite frankly, he was not that great last year. Those are the only two guys who started at least 50 games at one position for the Orioles last season. The next highest was Cedric Mullins, who started 36 games at center field, and Cedric Mullins might not even be your everyday center fielder next year. We'll see how that pans out with Mullins and Austin Hayes. Lock down a position, <laughs> please. That, that's all I'm asking. Yeah. Just lock down one. I don't know what position it will be. Maybe Ryan Mountcastle at first base. That's the one. You, yeah, that's maybe the, Anthony Santander and right. That's the problem is I would say Mountcastle is the closest to being. He is on this current team. He's the one who is most likely to stick on this team when they are competitive again. Right. And winning AL East titles again. But he doesn't have a position because they said that they're going to stick him in left probably to start the 2021 season. Yeah. But who knows if he's going to stick there. They still have Trey Mancini, obviously, at first base. Still have Chris Davis at first base. They don't want to make Ryan Mountcastle a DH. So he does not have a defensive position, a defensive home yet. I'm just asking for one. Yeah. Just one position to seemingly be locked down. It's tough. And even Austin Hayes, I would say, had a good chance to lock down center field. And here comes Cedric Mullins. And here comes Cedric Mullins, and Yosniel Diaz is right on his tail as well. Yep. So, <laughs> Just one. Yeah. That's all I want. I think there's a chance. I think there's a chance. Yeah. Um, all right. My, my New Year's resolution, my first New Year's resolution, be more consistent offensively. We saw the offense hit great heights in 2020. They were a very good offensive team. But they were hot and they were cold. And from night to night, you did not know what you were going to get, especially as the season wore on and we got into August. They, through the first two, three weeks of the season, through August 15th, they were averaging 5.3 runs per game. That's great. That's, That's elite. Then from August 16th to August 31st, another two-week stretch, they averaged 3.6 runs per game. That's not a lot. They, here are some game log runs. In okay. the middle of September, zero runs, one run, one run, one run, 14, Woo. one run. Oh. The, that beginning stretch being that awful series at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. And then they burst out for 14 runs against the Braves, and then they score one run the next night against them. Oh. At one point later on in September, they had one run, one run, two, three, one, 13. So when you look at the overall stats for the offense in 2020, they were great. They were near the top of the league. But you didn't know what you were going to get on a night-in, night-out basis. So blips like the 14 and 13 runs kind of bloated that number. So a more consistent offense would lead to a better offense and more wins. And I think the offense will be improved in 2021. I think we'll see some more consistency. We'll get a full year of Ryan Mountcastle. Hopefully the return of Trey Mancini. Hopefully the return of Anthony Santander. I think those three will certainly help the Orioles' offense be at least a little bit more consistent next year. Yeah. All right, what's your next one, Brennan? Lock down a position, please. Did I say that already? You it's, got that first one. I, I know, but this time it's pitchers. Okay. Lock <laughs> down the pitchers, please, because just two starters pitch started at least 10 games in 2020, being John Means and Alex Cobb. You know who the the pitcher who started the third most games for the Orioles was last year? Started the third most games? Third most games for the Orioles last year. I bet you won't get it. Who were the first two? <laughs> Alex Cobb and John Means. Uh, Dean Kramer? Asher Wojciechowski. Yikes. Who did not start 
for most of the second half of the season was your third most frequent starter for the Baltimore Orioles. So I am really hoping for next year that we see more consistency just in who is starting. Yeah. I think Alex Cobb is a trade piece, but outside of him, you've got John Means, you've got Dean Kramer, you've got Keegan Aiken. I think those three should be solid fixtures in the Orioles rotation. Yeah, this one I think is achievable because assuming they don't get injured, I think you are most likely going to see a one, two, three of John Means, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken in some order. And I don't know where Alex Cobb will be by season's end. I tend to think he's not going to be in Baltimore, but I do think you will have a more solidified rotation. I don't think you're going to see guys thrown in there unless there's an injury. I don't think you're going to see guys thrown in there the way that we saw Bruce Zimmerman, the way that we saw Jorge Lopez, the way that we saw some of their waiver claims thrown in midseason last year, because I think there are going to it's going to be more difficult to get a spot in this rotation. And again, assuming guys stay healthy, there are going to be fewer open rotation spots, at least for the final couple months of the season. Agreed. What what is your next resolution? My next resolution for the Baltimore Orioles win close ball games late. Last podcast, we talked about how the bullpen was much improved. They went from maybe the worst unit in baseball to a top 10 bullpen, at least in terms of ERA. And while that was true, we still saw a lot of games squandered in the final innings. Even though the team was 21-1 when leading after seven innings, they were 1-7 when tied after seven innings. So a lot of games were won and lost in those final two innings. And a lot of games for the Orioles were lost in those final two innings, which is crazy because you flip that around, make them 7-1 and one over the final two innings, they're a playoff team. So it, it was a huge difference in their win-loss record at the end of the day because they just, and part of that was Cole Sulcer closing out games like he did for the first month or so of the season. But part of it was also... In the final stages of games, they kind of fell apart. So if they can just get better, and it happens with young teams, but if they can get better at closing out games and get better at winning the games that are close, that are tied in the eighth or seventh or ninth innings, they can be an actual winning ball club. And that goes back to your first resolution a little bit there, Paul, because the bullpen was pretty darn good last year. Yeah, The guys in the Orioles' bullpen had really good seasons. We talked about it on our previous podcast that a lot of those guys had career years. So I really don't think it was as much of the fault of the bullpen as it is the fact that the offense really wasn't consistent enough to give you runs late in games. I I think that needs to, I I think your first two resolutions need to come together. I think the first one needs to happen for the second one to happen with a more consistent offense. I think you'll see more consistency late in games. All right, Brendan, what's your third and final resolution? My third and final resolution is more of an overarching one to end my New Year's resolutions, and that is to not forget the goal. That is a resolution for us sitting up here talking about the Orioles, for fans, for the team. This is still rebuild mode. I think the Orioles will be improved next season, mainly because a lot of the guys that they have coming back, like Trey Mancini, like Anthony Santander, a full season of Ryan Mountcastle, some more prospects, things like that. But don't forget the goal. The goal is still 
to build the best farm system possible to compete a few years down the road. And it's important to keep in mind that while there are some years of just kind of looking at bad baseball on the field, and while it's improving, it's still got to be that same goal, which is if a player is playing really well and he's a veteran, he might get traded. So you've got to keep that goal in mind as we go through the 2021 season. And my resolution is to not forget that, to try to keep Zen when we're seeing the Orioles lose some games and try to keep Zen when we see them trade some good quality veteran players. That means for us having to be the buzzkill, unfortunately, yes. sometimes. And that we were a little bit last year at times when the team was winning. We tried to be optimistic and, and you know, I think we were for the most part, but also you do have to remember that the goal in mind is not to win in 2021. The goal in mind is to win a championship several years down the line. Yes. And we saw that kind of tested this year when the team was within half a game of a playoff spot midseason, and Michael Elias still traded away Tommy Malone, still traded away Michael Givens and Miguel Castro. So I don't think the team is going to lose sight of this. I think this is more a reminder to the fan base that this is the ultimate goal. And no matter... How, not no matter how close they get, because you would still like to see them make the playoffs. And I think Michael Eyes would still like to see them make the playoffs. But don't expect them, if they are within shouting distance of a playoff spot on July 31st, to go out and trade for Francisco Lindor. It's, <laughs> it's, it's eyes on the prize. Yeah. And there's still things to be optimistic about. I mean, if the Orioles come out in 2021 and all of their prospects that have been called up over the last few years play lights out baseball, awesome. That just means the Orioles are a little bit ahead of schedule from where we and most people thought they were. Yeah. I mean, if Ryan Mountcastle comes out and has a whale of a season, Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, guys like that. A whale of a season. A whale of a season. If they're all of a sudden in playoff contention with the prospects that have been called up, awesome. But if it's the veteran players that are getting them there, they're probably getting traded. My final resolution, stop pitching to Randall Gritchick. Don't do it. Stop doing it. We see you out there thinking about doing it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't Randall Gritchick, 10 games against the Orioles in 2020, seven homers. You know how many homers he hit overall in 2020? 12. More than half of his homers came against the Baltimore Orioles. That's he math. had 18 RBIs. Quick math, right in the head. The noggin. 333 he hit against the Orioles. 333, Brendan. He was That's only good. walked twice. I mean, Walk him it, more. It's not quite Gleyber Torres good. But my goodness, is it good? Should we place bets on who Mookie bets? the random player is going to be next year that That's just kill the destroys Orioles? the Orioles? Because it, it apparently the power switches. Yeah. So I would think that it will probably still be... It's going to be somebody in the AL East. Somebody in the AL East. It won't be another Yankee and it won't be another Blue Jay because it has to transfer to somebody else. So I'm thinking it either, either has to be a Red Sox or a Tampa Bay Ray. And it's not going well, to be... We, we saw Mookie do it with the Red Sox three years ago. So okay. I'm going to say take so you're Red thinking Sox it's a Ray. Yeah. Who, who else? Who's left in their lineup after they just traded? See, but I don't think it's going to be a star. Mookie, Mookie Betts yeah. was, he was obviously a, the star of the Red Sox. Star. Yeah. But Glaber Torres was not the best player on the Yankees. Right. And Randall Gritchick is not the best player on the Blue Jays. So I'm trying to think who on the Rays that isn't their best player could destroy the Baltimore uh, Orioles. It's not gonna. Yeah, I don't. I'm know. gonna ready Kevin, for this. Kevin Kiermeyer, unless they trade. Kevin Kiermeyer, they're gonna. I'm trade gonna him, say Willie Adamas. That's a good. It's a good guess. That is my best guess for who will be the Orioles' killer 
for next year, or it could be your rookie of the year pick, Yoshi Tsutsuga. I think it's going to be Tsutsuga. You think it's going to be Yoshi I just think Tsutsuga? he's going to mash, absolutely mash against this team. All right, let's talk about the uh, all Camden Yards draft, Brendan. Let's do it. We have this uh, idea, which I stole from an athletic podcast called Birds with Friends. This is a draft that we are going to execute next week. And basically the idea is we are trying to assemble the three best Orioles teams that have played at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So it only includes players that played with the Orioles from 1992 until today. The three teams are my team, your team, Brendan, and the team of Connor Newcomb, who is a good friend of ours, friend of the pod, and also the host of Locked On Orioles podcast. So we are going to be drafting these teams, which means we're going to be doing a snake order draft. We don't have the order yet of that draft. We're going to determine it as you do a random name generator. I am nervous. I am as well. Yeah. But it's a snake draft. So that means person who gets the first pick also gets the sixth pick. Person who gets the second pick gets the fifth pick. Person who gets the third gets the fourth. So we're going to get a lot of back-to-back picks by teams. Uh, We are including on our roster nine position players, including a DH, five starting pitchers, and three relievers, and one manager. So we are drafting all of those positions. And the production only counts from 1992 until today. So if you draft Cal Ripken Jr., you're only going to get the 10 years of his career from 92 until 2001 or 2002. You're only going to get the years he played at Camden Yards. So you're not going to get the the bulk of his prime. So keep that in mind. And also, you're not, if you draft Jake Arietta, you can't, also take credit for his production that he had with the Cubs and say, well, he's a Cy Young pitcher. You're only taking his production with the Orioles, which was not very good. So I would not say draft Jake Arrieta, most likely. Spoiler alert. But we'll see. Did all that make sense? Yes. And also, a few other things to keep in mind. I can't draft Cal Ripken Jr. and put him in right field. Right. The players that we draft have to be at a certain position. They have to have played that position for at least a few games. Yes, not just random spot duty. And where that comes into play, I think, is when you say, J.J. Hardy, well, I'm just going to throw him at second base because he could play that position. Yeah, he could, but he never did with the Orioles. Right. So, But say you could put Brian Roberts at shortstop. Yes. Because Brian Roberts played a good amount of shortstop, even though he is primarily known to be a second baseman for the O's. And for Cal Ripken and Manny, those shortstop guys shortstop or third base because they played those positions for a good number of games. And, and it's important with DH as well. Yes. Because DH traditionally, at least right now, is you put your best player who's not in a field position. We are drafting a DH if they have actually played some DH for the Orioles. and They have to have at least a few games there. And another thing to think about is... When all else is equal, the guy with more experience gets the nod. You can draft somebody who, you can draft Nelson Cruz, who had a great year with the Orioles, but that's only one year. You want to opt with somebody who had more years with the Orioles, typically. Now, the production at a certain point will outweigh the experience. So you have to balance the two things, and it's it's not an exact science. It's as if you were signing them 
to a contract that was the length of the amount of years that they played right. with the O's since 1992 when Camden Yards opened. Yeah. So if you were signed, and you're guaranteed to lose them after the contract. Right. So say you have Nelson Cruz, what's the value of one really good year of Nelson Cruz versus 10 years of Cal Ripken Jr.? You'd obviously rather take the 10 years yeah. rather than just the one for Nelson Cruz. Exactly. But if he outweighs somebody who was not so great for three years, maybe you take the one year of Nelson Cruz. Exactly. So all of this is going to be determined. Our teams, the quality of our teams, going to be up to you, the fans. You're going to be voting on, I think we'll pull out a Twitter poll. We'll figure out exactly how you're going to be voting. Talk to Hannah Broder, our social media manager. She has good ideas for hashtag engagement. But we're going to try to... We're going to give you an opportunity to vote on who you think has the best team when all is said and done. I think we're going to split the draft because it's going to take a long time over the course of two episodes. So we make sure that we have the full thing in and we don't end up recording a three-hour podcast that is difficult to make your way through and, and just gets boring. So yes. we are. It, it may get boring near the end because the, we're going to be drafting random relief pitchers. The starting rotations are going to be ugly. I'll just say that. Yeah. Look, if I learned anything from all of my years in the front office of major league teams, yeah. it's that the late rounds are where teams are built. This is true. You gotta keep you gotta pay attention to those late rounds. That that is going to separate look, anybody can draft Mike Messina at the top of this draft. Yeah. But it's gonna take a, a good fantasy draft manager here to draft somebody who maybe is overlooked. See. Seventh, eighth round. This, this honestly could not be further from the truth. I think this draft <laughs> is going to be built on the first five rounds, and that's it. I don't think anybody's well, we going to be paying attention. we know somebody's mentality. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to be paying attention to Oh, that. I'm going to be paying attention, Paul. Okay. I'm going to be paying attention. And th there are going to be some interesting questions because you have two managers near the top, then you have a big gap, and then you have the rest of the managers. So how much does a manager... In theory, how much does a manager... Matter. Matter. And how are... Could two people kind of not conspire because we're not going to talk before the draft, but could two people? Oh, there's going to be collusion. Shut out a third team from getting a certain position. If if two, there were only two good or great players at a certain position, one person could be left out. So, you know, you may have to overdraft somebody because you don't want to be left out of having a good player at a certain position. And then that takes into account how much depth there is at certain positions. And if you to the other two players take a manager, you can wait until the very end of the draft yep. to take a manager because you know that they can only fill one managerial spot. So you don't have to go out and get that manager. You can wait. It's going to be 4D chess all over the place. Paul and I will also this be is, playing a game of chess while we draft. I am going to come in all over in a Queen's Gambit wig uh, wearing... I will be here in a tuxedo. <laughs> yeah. What a show. Have you watched Queen's Gambit yet? I'm two episodes in. I have some hot takes on that show. Okay. Should I spoil the entire show right uh, now? Probably not. In episode four, <laughs> it's it's an interesting show. One of the best looking shows I've ever seen. Yeah. Anywho. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, look out for that. So Brendan, we, you, we also have to determine the order right now oh, on no. this podcast. Oh, no. It's, Paul, you're I'm literally nervous. clicking randomize on a random team. Genre. Paul, I am nervous. My goodness. I don't know which pick I want. I don't know if I want number one. I don't know either. I, 
I'm nervous. That's all I know. All I know, I think I want the third pick, if I'm being honest. You want the third pick. Because you get four, you get three, four. I think I want two. I think there's there are three great players in this draft that are going to go one, two, three. And I think so long as you get one of those three, you'll be okay. So I want the first pick of the second round. I think... I don't know. It's tough. Roll the thing, Paul. I either want one, two, or three. Roll the random.com generator. Oh boy, I'm this is Brendan, Paul, and Connor. What is it? What are the orders? Oh boy. Okay. We have a draft. We have a draft. The order is as follows. With the first overall pick <laughs> in the Camden Yards draft. I didn't want this. We have Paul Mancano. Didn't want this pick. He didn't want this pick, but it I is have the responsibility one that has been thrust upon him. Oh, man. The second overall pick in the Camden Yards draft belongs to yours truly. Okay. Which means the third overall pick in the Camden Yards draft belongs to Connor Newcomb. Okay. I'm stressed, Paul. Let the preparation begin. Begin? I've been prepping for years. <laughs> By watching Get Ready. Bad Orioles teams of the 2000s. I have been prepping for years. My goodness, is this going to be something? All right. Well, tune in next week as we begin our Camden Yards draft. Thank you to everybody for listening, following, reviewing, liking, subscribing, all that good stuff. He's at Brendan Morty on Twitter. I'm at Paul Mancano. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, In case you were watching on Facebook, our stream got interrupted. Sorry. Sorry. That's what happens when you're going from your kitchen, living room, Thank you so much for tuning in. You can listen to the full podcast here, as you would already know because you're listening. (laughs) All right, we'll see you later. 